This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Canada has not won a medal in this event in 40 years. The Australians will win gold. Alexia trying to hold off the world champion, and she did it! Bronze medal for Canada, the Australians, world record, Canadian record for the Canadians. Everybody with great performances. The Americans are pleased with their silver medal, but Canada obviously should be ecstatic with this bronze medal. Kudos to coach Ben Titley, brought over to run the National Training Center in Toronto. His sole mission was to get the sprint in Canada back on world scene. He has done that and brought them to a medal. There they are, Chantel Van Landegam, six foot four, both Chantal and on the far right, Sandrine missed the Olympic team four years ago by hundreds of seconds, tenths of seconds, and they decided to go four more years. There's Kate Campbell, good shot of her in the United States, uh, in the water for Australia, bringing home the gold medal. Lane number three, three from the right is Sandrine Manville in the water. Here's the exchange going into the first exchange. Van Landegam's going in off of Manville. She's in third spot at this point. The key was the beginning. The Dutch swimmer in the, in the very first leg wasn't as fast as we thought. Sandrine Manville went four tenths quicker than she did in the morning preliminaries. That put Canada in a possible position to win a medal. Van Landegam did a great job coming in in her leg. Then in the third leg, you were able to get a good split as well by young Taylor Ruck. And of course, Penny Alexiak in the far left, far left, there she comes, comes in for the bronze medal for Canada. As you said, Elliot, a great closer. Promo Jojo from the Holland gave a huge push at the end. There's Allison, Penny's mother, and waving her on. And the sister Ailey waving her on. Come on, Penny, do it, do it, do it. I hate to tell you, Allison, but she can't hear you, but it makes <laughs> it feel better to cheer, that's fine. You can see on that graphic up at the top there, that's the world record line for the Australians. They're going to get in under that. But there's Penny, head down, don't take a breath, don't take a breath, right to the wall. Chantel on the left, young Taylor Ruck with a white cap on, Sandrine on the far right. Sandrine starts law school this fall at the University of Montreal. She said, I might keep swimming. Well, she's got an Olympic medal to put on her board if she wants to keep swimming. 40 years, that's how long it had been since Canada won a medal in the women's 4x100 freestyle. That drought ends here. And Michelle Williams, it should be noted, who swam the heat on Saturday morning, will also receive a bronze medal. She got them here. She shares in the triumph. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Law School Show. My name is Amos Vang, and I will be your host for this episode. This is what perseverance is. It takes perseverance to represent clients resolutely and fervently in the courts, and it takes perseverance to stand out on the world stage. Training, preparation, and practice are three of the most important things for a person to thrive in each and every one of these areas. So, it is no surprise that my guest for today is a person that has not only succeeded in both areas, but has also become a leader in both areas. My guest is Olympic bronze medalist Sandrine Menville. 
Sandrine is a labor and employment lawyer at Borden Landers Gervais in Montreal. But she is more commonly known as one of Canada's greatest swimmers of the 21st century. Sandrine began swimming at age 11. And in 2013, she won a bronze medal and set a Canadian short course record in the women's 100-meter freestyle at a World Cup event in Berlin. That same year, Sandrine set a Canadian record with a fifth-place finish in the women's 4x100 freestyle relay. And Sandrine also won bronze in the women's 4x100-meter freestyle relay at the 2013 Universiade. In 2014, Sandrine won the Sprinters' Cup at the 2014 Canadian Inter-University Sport Championships, now known as the U-Sports Canada Championships. In 2015, at the FINA World Championships in Kazan, Russia, Sandrine struck bronze again in the 4x100-meter mixed freestyle event. That same year, Sandrine, alongside Michelle Williams, now Michelle Toro, Catherine Savard, and Chantal Van Lannigham, struck gold in the women's 4x100-meter freestyle relay and set a Pan Am Games record. In 2016, Sandrine finished third in the women's 100-meter freestyle at the 2016 Olympic and Paralympic trials in Toronto. And in that same year, Sandrine won bronze at the 2016 Rio Olympic Games in the women's 4x100-meter freestyle relay against the powerhouse teams of the United States and Australia. After winning a couple more medals at subsequent FINA World Championships and setting a new U-Sports record in the women's 100-meter freestyle at the 2018 U-Sports Swimming Championships, Sandrine would retire from the world of swimming in 2018. During the years of 2015 to 2018, Sandrine was balancing her swimming and Olympic career with a Bachelor of Laws at l'Université de Montréal along with practicing labor and employment law, and along with a focus on dispute settlement, Sandrine is a member of the Board of Directors of the Sport Dispute Resolution Center of Canada, the SDRCC. Sandrine is known as a multi-medalist and a world championship-level swimmer. But here at the Law School Show, we know Sandrine as something else. A legend. With a power level of over 9,000, Sandrine Menville joins me on the show today. Sandrine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. So let's start off from the beginning. And normally what I would ask my guests as the first question is, what inspired you to go to law school? But for your case, it's a lot more appropriate to go even further before that. What inspired you to pursue swimming? Well, my both parents were athletes when they were younger. And uh, so I guess when I was a child, I, I used to do a lot of different sports. Um, and eventually, I guess I was doing just doing sports for fun on the weekends with my friends. And when I got to the age of 11, um, they told me that it, it might be a good thing if I chose one sport in particular and just put all my energy in that sport to see where it would lead me. And um, at first, I wanted to try gymnastics because that's all my friends did. Um, but my parents um, saw me and saw my physiology and they thought that maybe I was maybe too tall to do that. And they knew that there's a lot of injuries in that sport. So they kind of pushed me to try swimming uh, because they saw that when I was doing um, 
swimming lessons, I was uh, quite fast. And so uh, I was like, yeah, for sure. So I tried swimming. Um, I, I kind of liked it. I uh, made some friends. Uh, I improved a lot in the, the first couple of years. And so that's what got me uh, motivated. So that's pretty much how I got started. And that start would, of course, be quite an interesting one. And take us back to your first ever swim meet. So the very first time that you swam competitively, what was it like? And what, if you could remember, of course, what did you prepare? Uh, what did you do to prepare for that meet? Honestly, I don't even remember my first ever meet, but I remember one that was my first um, imported meet. I think I was uh, 15 years old or maybe I was 13 years old. It was Quebec Games in 2005. So yeah, I was 13 years old. Um, Quebec Games. So I mean, Quebec Games is for 15 years old and uh, younger. So it's not very big. But back then, for me, it was the biggest thing ever. Um, and I went there. And to be honest, I learned so much from that experience. Because, you know, when you're starting something new, uh, you don't really trust yourself uh you don't really know what you're doing you're competing or you you're doing that with people around you and everybody else looks like they're mastering what they're doing and you feel like you have no idea what you're doing and so that's exactly what happened to me I was entered in the 50 meter butterfly and how it works in swimming is that you have preliminaries in the morning and then finals at night and after the preliminaries I was second um and so I had kind of like good chances to come first uh, at the finals, but because I didn't trust myself um, and because the person that was seated first was two years older than me, I thought, well, for sure, I'm not going to come first. Um, I'm just going to go and try my best, but uh, I don't think I can touch the wall first. And my coach looked at me and he said, you know what, if you have confidence, if you trust yourself, you might come first. And he just told me that it went from one ear, went back, you know, it, it didn't, I didn't even listen to him because I, to be honest, um, trust is not something that uh, has to come from outside, you know, it has to come from within. And at that time, I guess I didn't have it. And so I went into the finals. Um, at the end, I finished second by 0 0.02. Uh, so two hundreds of a second. And, you know, in sports, it's like, it happens all the time, but you know, when it happens to you at that moment, I thought, you know, I, I'm pretty sure if I had trust myself, if I had confidence, I might have conversed. And so I guess at that point, I realized how confidence and how trusting yourself, trusting the process was so important. Um, so it might not have been my first uh, meet, but it was like the first one that really taught me uh, something good big lesson for for me to to continue in my career absolutely and that and even though i'm not an athlete but as a classical pianist that used to compete in uh the national classical music competitions i can relate to that a lot because for what i found being able to have self-confidence and trust that's something that really comes with practice right and for your for your swimming career of course you've had to go through a lot of a lot of practices a lot of workouts um, sessions with your coaches. For me, as we were speaking before we started recording, my mom was actually my, my piano teacher for most of my life. So for myself, it wasn't just the practicing, but at home, my mom would also uh, really push me to be the best possible pianist that I could be. Well, I, I fell into piano when I, was, when I was three years old, of course. And I actually, apparently, my mom said that I, I 
asked her if I could learn piano, and that's what happened. But essentially, like at the end of the day, you need someone to guide you through and to put you in the right direction, right? And mm -hmm. for me, like from when I was starting to perform for the first time when I was a kid, I I wasn't really nervous, but I was just thinking, like, am I? Is the practice that I'm doing correct? Am I actually playing playing the piece correctly? And then turns out the answer was yes. And, you know, and it turns out people were actually interested in, perform in my performances. And um, that's what really ha happened afterwards. And, uh, and that, that was just, that was many, many years ago. But yeah, I can relate to the, the self-confidence and the issue of self-confidence. And I think a lot of law students can relate to that as well, especially those who are in first year who have no idea how, well, some of them may have no idea how in the world again do I get into law school? Right. It's like, well, it's like, I, I'm, I'm here. I feel like I'm not sure if I belong here. Uh, but, you know, over time, that's when you have to understand that you're here for a reason in law school. You're here to you have the skills, you have the potential. All you have to do is realize it. And that comes through practice and hard work. And I think a lot of, a lot of law students will very much relate to that uh, at the end of the day to to your own personal experiences and to some of the challenges that you faced early on. Mm -hmm. But I think you got to realize that, uh, like you said, it comes from experience too. So you cannot just uh, pretend, you know, at first that like you're going to have all the confidence in the world. I think it's normal at the beginning that you're like trying to, you know, test the waters, drink something and eventually you're going to learn from every experience. But I, I feel like you have to kind of like accept that trust is not going to be there completely at first. It's just something that you're going to build through the years. And I guess you just got to remember that it happened to everybody, to every great lawyer, every great athlete. I'm pretty sure that not everybody just started from day one and thought, you know, like I'm the greatest in the world. I know exactly what to do, you know? So you just got to accept, trust the process and trust that eventually you're going to be great. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That's the reason why, as we'll get into later on in this episode, in swimming, as you know, there's so many different levels of championships. There's the regional championships, and then there's the provincial championships. There's national juniors, national seniors, and then trials, and then world championships or Olympics. And yeah, and, and each it's it's like a goalpost for each and every person who's 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 swimming and trying to compete at the top levels. Each goalpost and each level, how far are you able to make it? And you know what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, and you learn from that experiences. It's it's also a similar thing in 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 law as well, of of course. I mean, there's I mean, aside from the marks uh, from the marks and the bell curve and that takes place in, in in many of the law schools in Canada. There's also a lot of well, well, understanding where you stand in terms of your knowledge of the law and how you can apply it and how you're able to perform as, as well in a legal setting. It's it's yeah, it, it it really is a matter of just getting experience. And for your case, when you started realizing that you were getting higher and higher in, in the competition levels, what were some of the early challenges that you faced early on in your swimming career and that you would see, you know, for the, the middle part of your career, what were some of the challenges that you faced? That's a really good question. Um, I guess um, making good choices um, because so when I, I was younger, I, you know, I didn't really um, ask myself any questions. I didn't have a plan. I, I just did what I was supposed to do. And it was more like a short-term goal. Uh, what am I going to do tomorrow? What is my next competition? But not necessarily um, that I want to go to the Olympics in how many years or I want to be the best in the world. I was re just really like in the moment. 
Um, I went to Canada Games. I was 17 years old in 2009, and I did some really good performance performance there. And um, I guess I, if I, if it was just for me, I would have come back home and just kept going like that until I don't know what it would have happened. Um, but I was lucky enough to have a good team around me. So my dad, like I said, uh, had a, an athlete uh, past, and he was also really, uh, you know, uh, he was, you know, looking out for me and wanted me to go like to, to the best to, to have furthest that I could go in swimming because uh, he knew that it was just a great experience. So he actually talked to the right people. And that's when I moved from my little hometown to go train at the National Center in Montreal, um, where I could train with the best in Canada there. Um, so I guess it's not really a challenge, but I, it's just uh, something, I guess, that... Um, was important for me and I was lucky enough to have uh, people around me to make the right decisions for me. Um, eventually, uh, I'm not going to talk about like all the challenges that I had in my career, but I feel like that was like the, the first um, stepping stone in my career where it really led me to the next step. And from there, you know, like my mind was just like somewhere else eventually when I got there and I trained with the best in Canada I you know like my objectives kind of like shaped themselves because of how we were training what our goals were everybody there wanted to go to the Olympics and not just go to the Olympics they wanted to perform at the Olympics so um so it was just great for me to go there but and then like I said I'm not going to talk about all my challenges in my career eventually I had an injury eventually they closed the National Center in Montreal and blah, blah, blah. So, um, but I guess the first one that I realized was important as an athlete, but I was also just in life in general to be able to make the right choices. And it might be hard um, in the moment, but um, you got to get out of your comfort zone sometimes to reach the next level and, uh, you know, improve and just kind of like see what's, what's out there and, you know, what's available for you. And um, I guess I also, I don't know about you, but I also apply that in my uh, professional career now. Um, you know, sometimes it's easy to just keep going every day. It's going to be, you know, trying the best that you can. But what 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 else is there, you know? And uh, what else can you do? What else can you do to not only improve your career, but see if, you know, there's there's something else out there that you can do that can fulfill your your goals and you might not even know that those are your goals eventually but you're only gonna know that uh, this is interesting or that is a goal that you wanted if you're curious and if you're open to that and if you make the right decisions to you know always stay open to those uh, options I guess absolutely yeah and for me it's a similar experience uh in in this way as well of course nowhere close to your level of course but uh i do really i do relate a lot to it and i think a lot of people can relate to the fact that you know not everyone has a good day not everyone not every day is going to be a good day there are going to be some bad days or some mediocre days but it's it's a part of the growing process in the legal world in a legal career and really in any career that we that you or I or anyone really chooses to pursue in the near or far future, and I think I think a lot of us can 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 relate to that because 
I mean, we're human. I mean, it, it, all of us, we have our ups and our downs, our trials and our triumphs. And it's a matter of overcoming these. And I know it's, it may sound, for some of our audience, it may sound a bit cliche, but it really is just a matter of being able to, to overcome it, not just by yourself, of course, but you know, with the support group that you have and with the family or friends that you have along the way. It's really like a group process. And I think, especially in my, in my brief uh, exposure to, uh, to broadcasting swimming, I see a lot of that. I see a lot of that at competitions and also outside of competitions, a lot of camaraderie amongst the swim clubs and the swim teams and, and the swimmers in general. Everyone's just cheering on each other. And it's really a test of pushing past your limits, breaking through those limits and reaching that goal. I, I see a lot mm-hmm. of that at competitions. Well, I think it's because, you know, we go through like really hard stuff. Um, You know, training is hard, um, but also, you know, positive experiences too, you know, like we travel together. uh, So training is hard, but then afterwards, like we do everything else together that, you know, it's like bad and good moments. And, you know, like relationships are shaped when you experience really intense experience, I guess. And so, it's like that with swimming, but I'm sure it's like that with every um, group of athletes. And it's kind of like the same in a a law firm because I don't know about you in articling, but uh, for me, when I was articling, so we were a group of six people and it was so in Quebec, six months of articling. And during those six months, it was so hard, but at the same time, so rewarding. And so you're going through ups and downs Uh, you stay late together, you shape relationships like that. And so I think it's really important to, you know, be close to those people because you're you're living the same thing as them. They understand you, but at the same time, you know that, you know, you're all going through the same thing and you can, you know, count on each other if something bad is happening or if you're at the end uh, getting a job, then you can all celebrate together. So it's really nice to have a group of people around you like that. Absolutely. The thing about law that contrary to popular belief is that law is not an individual pursuit it's very much a collaborative and a teamwork pursuit and yeah in my article experience it's just a similar situation it's all about teamwork and if you've got questions you got to ask those questions because it's better to to figure out what you don't know than you know to be caught or exposed for what you don't know at a later date when it really matters, when that case is hinging on that particular point that you don't know, right? And that comes with experience and that comes with asking questions. The whole point of articling is to get practical experience and to, to, to learn more about that practice of, uh, practice of law and to make the mistakes early on so you, don't, so you won't make them when it really matters in your legal practice. Of course, those mistakes do matter even as an articling student, but even more so in a legal practice because you don't you don't want clients to be missing out on something that i mean they're entitled to or you don't want clients some of their interests not being represented at all that's not a that's not a good thing at all but yeah it's all about that collaborative experience and all about that teamwork that helps you uh get to that level helps you get to a level where you can approach it very confidently and in a legal mm-hmm. practice yeah, I, I guess now that I think about it, law is like swimming, you know, like at first you think that it's individual, but at, at the end, it's really about team. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
unfortunately, I can't really say the same for for when for a classical piano though. Uh, <laughs> for for, <laughs> for 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 because the thing about classical piano is that it's re- it's very insular. It's a very insular kind of environment. Um, uh, we tend to as classical pianists, we tend to practice on our own, very much on our own. We we would sit five, mm-hmm. six, seven, eight hours a day practicing many different repertoire and sometimes if there's, there's, there's a certain piece whether maybe a sonata or or a concerto where we have we would struggle on a specific part like we'd be drilling that part over and over and over maybe we might take a break and kind of walk away if we can't get that part down but when we come back we, we have a fresh mind and we would just practice 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 but there's not a lot of collaboration between pianists especially mm-hmm. when you're at a competition it's very much you don't even know who's competing first of all so they could be all across the province or all across the country, and that would be the first time you ever you ever hear them play. But what is interesting is that, at least when I was competing in 2012 at the Canadian Music Competition, what I found was that even when they're practicing and warming up, I already hear ideas. Because in classical music, it's all about ideas and interpretation, artistic interpretation. What I found was that you can even get different ideas off of listening to them practicing. Now imagine what you can do when you listen to them performing, right? It's it's a very it, it's, but it's again it's very much like it's very individualistic for a classical piano. I'm not sure about other classical uh, instruments. For an orchestra, it would be a lot more collaborative because an orchestra is a group of people, of mm-hmm. course, right? But for a pianist, it's very much you, 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 and your piano teacher. In this case, it was my mom and my my second piano teacher that I had also later on in in my career, but. But yeah, it's I, I, I it's something that I guess I missed out on as a classical pianist that that you were able to enjoy as a, as a swimmer. Um, so that's something that I <laughs> that I well, wish I had. You know what? So I was doing piano when I was younger. So I learned, uh, yeah, like maybe from eight to 12 years old, um, my parents wanted me to play the piano. So I took lessons and. Uh, I guess the the reason why I stopped is because I thought it was too individualistic. So Mm. uh, I didn't like the fact that I had to practice for several hours in my parents' living room. Uh, Just (laughs) being by yourself uh, with my piano, I thought, you know, it wasn't for me. Um, So, but I'm so... Um, I guess I have some regrets now because when I hear people play piano, I think it's so incredible and, uh, you know, it's just amazing. So uh, good for you that uh, you were you. able to keep, keep going like that. Well, I have, my, I have my, my, my mom and my dad. I have both of my parents to thank for that. If it wasn't for them being able to push me, I wouldn't have had the experiences yeah. that I've had. And, and it's never too late to learn piano, too. Um, the, yeah. Are the most recent winner of the international Chopin competition, Bruce Liu, who, by the way, is the very first Canadian to win first prize at this competition. We've never had a Canadian that won first prize. We had we had one, Charles Richard Hamelin, who won second, and Tony Yang, who won fifth. But we never had one who won first. But this year was the first time. Bruce said that he started very late, actually, but he's still and look where he is now. He's now one of the most well-known pianists in in the 21st century and he's proudly representing canada of course and it's never too late to to learn piano we had another uh, there's another russian pianist i think he started at 17 and he's one of the most technical pianists like it, it's it like, he would give he would give even a lot of 20 year olds a run for their money like, people who are in a similar situation it's just it's always it's never too late for for piano but uh 
um, yeah, it's never too late. You can always go in and, but again, I have my parents to thank too for, 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 for this, but enough about my, my, my piano past. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to your, to your swimming career. And I want to go to 2008 because you, from, from your team Canada profile, it said that you were inspired to compete in the Olympic in the Olympics, rather, after watching the 2008 Olympic trials. And from a layperson's perspective, again, like I mentioned earlier, you know, most people don't necessarily realize that there are actually so many different levels of competition way before the Olympics. So regionals, mm-hmm. provincials, nationals, national juniors, national seniors, trials, and then the world championships and the Olympics. And there's also short course and long course as well. So why was the 2008 Canadian Olympic trials so inspirational to you? What was it, what, what about it changed your approach and your view of swimming? That's again, a really good question. And every time I tell about that story, I always have the same vision in my head. And it's the vision that led me to eventually want to go to the Olympics. And so I was, it was my first time at the Olympic trials. It was in Montreal at the Olympic stadium. Um, I wasn't swimming there uh, yet. I was still training in my hometown in Boucherville. And so first Olympic trials, I went there. And again, there's preliminaries in the morning, finals at night. Um, I wasn't fast enough yet to make the finals. So what I did was I made the preliminaries in the morning. And then at night, I was just watching the finals from the stands. Or I guess I was on the pool deck and just watching people. And so I guess... Every single event that I was able to watch at night was so inspirational. And I can't tell you exactly, I guess, I don't even remember the race, but I just remember. So how it went is that um, when they touched the wall, the, the announcer was able to tell them right away if they made the cut to make the Olympics. It's not as, it's not like that anymore because now the, the criteria change and there's like a discretionary discretionary criteria now and so you only know at the end of the meet if you actually made the olympics but back then in 2008 you knew right when you touched the wall if you made it and so you touch the wall and you just hear the announcer i guess scream that you made the olympic team so can you imagine being at the olympic stadium with i don't know how many people can fit in the stands um and just it's like the result of so many years of training you finally made it, you have your friends, you have your coach, you have your family around you, and you hear the announcer telling you that you made the Olympic team in front of everybody, you know? And to look at them, to look at the swimmers in the pool, the the face that they made, the, the smiles that they had, you know, it was just so inspirational. I, I'm pretty sure I looked at them and I, I had a smile too, you know? Like I, I could feel what they were feeling. And so at that moment, I, I told myself, one day it's going to be me in the water and the announcer is going to tell me that I made the Olympic team. You know, at that moment, I knew it's going to be me one day. And um, it was clear at that moment that everything that I was going to do, every, you know, decision that I would make, it would be to eventually make the Olympic team. But uh, I know that you said that, uh, you know, it's not just the Olympics in life, and but it's still when you're uh, an amateur athlete, it's still kind of like the, the main goal. Um, I still really enjoyed everything else um, in my swimming career, just not just the Olympics itself. 
Um, but I guess it, it, it always stayed in my mind that I wanted to go there. So, yeah. Yeah. And 2008, as you know, was a really big year for Olympic swimming. I mean, Michael Phelps, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and his absolutely historic performance, eight gold medals in a single Olympics. Nobody has ever reached that in, in, in the history of the Olympics, the modern Olympics. And, and, and yeah, and, and even as, as just a regular lay person, a regular, uh, just a regular spectator, when I watched those, those swims, for me, it was the, the actual Olympics. I didn't really know too much about the, the trials and national championships back then. Just seeing the relays and seeing the, the individual performances and just hearing that, that energy, like you said, in the announcers when they hit the wall, and especially with Michael Phelps, when he hits it, when he, when he was second, I remember this one, I think it was the hundred, was it the hundred meter? I think it was the hundred meter butterfly. Butterfly. Yeah. Yeah. He was right behind Michael Cavage. And then at the last second, literally one, one hundredth of a second, that last push touches the wall. And I was watching on NBC. They were just like, he does it again. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> were just Something happened there. Like, I don't know what happened. Everybody thought he was second. Yeah. And he, yeah, those eight medal, gold medals were definitely something. And it's funny because now that I think about it, like 2008, that's when I realized that I wanted to make the Olympic team. In 2004, I didn't even know what the Olympics were almost. Like, or if I, no, maybe I'm exaggerating, but like I, I was not watching it. Um, I had, you know, no knowledge of, you know, what was happening exactly. I was not really interested in the Olympics. And it's crazy to think that, Four years later, that happened, and that led me to eventually like have my own goal of wanting to make the Olympic team. And it goes back to what I was saying before. Um, you never know eventually like what kind of like opportunities is going to come in your life, and eventually those goals are going to you know shape as you go you know in your life. But you might start something at the beginning. So I started in two thousand three. So in 2004, I, I should have known what the Olympics were, but I guess I was like too focused on the day-to-day, -day, uh, living the moment that I had no idea that it was like even an option. And it's just five years later that eventually, you know, it became an option. So I guess going back to my law, like law career, I'm starting now, like I'm almost like two years in, like I almost have like two years of practice and, you know, I'm still testing the waters I still don't know like what I want to do exactly but you gotta like trust that eventually it's just gonna appear and and it might not be tomorrow it might, might not be two years but eventually I, I'm pretty sure that it's gonna come up and uh, everything is gonna make sense maybe I'm being too uh I don't know no like, no I, I know it doesn't make sense for some people but for me I kind of like like the fact that I I don't know but eventually it's gonna be more clear. <laughs> no, 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 I get it. Yeah. I think a lot of people understand that too. And, and especially since you and I are roughly in the same age group as well. Um, and a lot of our audience, not all of them, of course, but most of our audience is also within, you know, 20 something year old to 30 something year old right. range. We can re definitely relate to, to just having that opportunity and just, you know, being very, being very, very hopeful for that opportunity and just waiting. Why can't it just come? now like we're, we're impatient for it right mm -hmm. and I, that's something that especially now with law being increasingly competitive as a career 
each and every year is just wow. Like the number of people going through law school, it hasn't really changed, but the competition for the jobs are getting fiercer and fiercer and fiercer because again, similar to swimming, the requirements have changed. It's really, it's, it's really important for us to, even though we're focusing on trying to be competitive, also understand that you know opportunities will come in. And that's also a big issue where, in, in, and just as a brief aside, in law, there's also a lot of issues with, with mental health issues because sometimes we push ourselves too hard to the extent where we, we're actually self-doubting ourselves and mm-hmm. second-guessing ourselves. And that is, and again, it's a, it's a problem that, that, that the legal career is facing, but that's why we have to remind ourselves that number one, just because it doesn't happen now doesn't mean that it won't happen later, right? And it's all about a matter of patience. And this is something that I'm, that I'm learning as well, number one. Number two, you're not going through this alone. You've got a whole group of other people around you. And I don't mean this just to say it as a cliche. Like I genuinely mean it. There's, there's everyone has a support system that they can turn to, whether it's family or friends, to help them through difficult times and the legal career and swimming career. Like you said, it's very similar because in this situation, you would approach it the the same way, right? With the support systems and, and everything and the training and the practice, it's so important to remember this. And sometimes I think a lot of people in our own personal peer groups, respectively tend to forget that. And I think it's, it's, it's an important reminder overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) So, but yeah, 2008, like you said, an inspirational year and for for you as a result your next step would be preparing for the 2012 olympic trials and at the time you were pursuing health sciences at cjep in, in a cjep program how did you balance your time between training and pursuing health sciences during that time um i guess i i gave the the time that it took for everything uh, to be, I guess, perfect, because I'm a perfectionist, like a, a lot of us in law, I guess. Um, I didn't want to like jeopardize my school or my swimming because I was doing both at the same time, but I wanted to do both at the same time. So what I did was that I was going part-time in school um, and 100% in swimming. You can't really be part-time in swimming at that point. So, but school you can because I knew that I guess that the window of opportunity for swimming was from this age to this age, but school, it's going to take as long as it takes, you know, I, I don't, I didn't want to rush it. And it was really important for me to do both at the same time for two reasons. The first reason is to keep um, a balance. Um, And I think it's pretty clear, like we often talk about, you know, especially now to have a a balance in your life, to not only have one thing, because if that one thing is doing bad, then, you know, your whole life is, you know, bad because you you experienced something that was, uh, you know, Uh, but if you have something else, you can kind of rely on that other area of your life. And so... It's, I think it's really important to have two things, especially as an athlete, to have, you know, if it's not school, to have something else um, to, you know, kind of like keep a sense of your life, you know, because if it's just about swimming because or, you know, sport, it's so sometimes I felt like I was in another world when I was swimming because it's so so different from real world 
your life is, you know, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's really different. You, you know, like you can't go out at night because you have to save your energy. Uh, you, you know, like you just sleep, train, eat well. It's, it's really, it's really weird. So I had to have something else that I could, you know, be in the real world. The, the second reason for me that it was important to do school at the same time was because I didn't want to, you know, retire from sport and not have anything else that I would just like be able to jump on. Um, there's a lot of athletes who um, they might have like finished high school, but they didn't go to CJEP or they didn't go to university. And so going back to square one in school when you're like maybe late 20s is really hard. So either they're not going back to school or they're just staying in sport for way too long because they're kind of scared to retire because they know that nothing else is waiting for them after. And I think I don't want to say it's sad, but a little bit because you don't want retirement to be, um, you know, hard. It has to come naturally. And it'll come naturally if eventually it clicks in your head that that other part in your life is just waiting for you and you want to experience that. And that's exactly what happened to me. I, you know, finished everything at the same time, you know, like I, my swimming and my um, professional life, like I did both, not professional, sorry, like your school, I did both at the same time. And I finished my school and my swimming almost at the exact same time. So I was able to switch to go to Borden Honor Gervais, the, the law firm that I'm at right now, when I retired. So I, I started working there. It was my first summer. It, I was not already clean yet, but it was just like a, a, a summer uh, student um, uh, position. And I was still swimming at the same time. And after two weeks, I just called my coach and I said, you know what? I'm done. I, I found something else. I found what, you know, I what motivates me outside of swimming. And right now that's what I want to do. I want to be hundred percent in this job. Um, I was, you know, 50% in my school for so many years that I wanted to start my professional career on the right foot. And for me, it meant hundred percent and it was not forced, you know, like it, 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 like I said, it clicked in my head. I was like, this is what I want to do. I did what I had to do in swimming. Um, I achieved the goals that I, I, I had and uh, it, it just came natural for me. So, um, but I guess to answer your question is just, you know, have good priorities, uh, be able to make the right decisions. Um, and that's what I would say to um, young athletes when they start to keep school at the same time. And even in, for professionals, you know, just having your career sometimes can be really really hard because if it's not going well uh, one day in, at the job then you know you have to have something else that you can rely on even like it, it can be your family it can be you know amateur sport on the side uh, I don't know what piano you know something else that uh, you can rely on I think is really important absolutely yes yes and what you mentioned just now it brings to mind also what Governor General or former Governor General David Johnston told me as well in his interview and 
and th at the time of this recording, this would have been three days after I recorded the interview with the governor general, the former governor general. And he said that it was a similar thing because he actually had <coughs> not just one time, but two times where he could have actually gone in the NHL. The first time was when he was still in high school and it was there was a scout named Jimmy Skinner who would later become the head coach of the Detroit Red Wings during the 50s and the 60s. And he actually won a couple of Stanley Cups as well. Uh, it, Mr. Johnston told me that his, his mom essentially said no to the NHL because a lot of the guys back then in the 50s, when you went to the NHL, you didn't go to school. Like, that's mm -hmm. it. NHL was your full-time career. And Mr. Johnston told me on, on, on the, law, the law school show, his mom had a very have had a very good grounding in terms of understanding what an education can do for you because you can't play hockey forever, right? There's going to come a point where you're going to get old and there's a new next generation of hockey athletes who will be coming in, who will be taking your place as well, who become the next best as well. So it's you need to have a road that comes out that is not related to the sports world in case you know once once you finish your career in sports and. For him, that's what led him to law, and as we all know now, he's he was he's he's served as the former governor general of Canada. So yeah, he he, it, it, he said the same thing and a similar thing as well. Same thing with music, honestly. Unless you are going through the classical music realm, although even then, like you can't just perform all the time. You need to have recording mm -hmm. deals. You need to have CDs if they still use CDs nowadays. Now it's all streaming. Now, um, it, you you need to have a specific road ahead. Otherwise, your performance, unless you become like Martha Argerich or, or Long Long or, or Arkady Volodos, I mean, the chances are you won't have, you, you won't be able necessarily to perform forever, right? Like you, you need to have another route out. And that's why some of them turn to teaching music or teaching, at a, teaching music at, at, a, at a professorship or at a university. So, yeah, it's a very similar situation. I, I think that people need to realize that the world of sports, and the world of music really are, are they're very i don't want to say they're insulated worlds but they're very different worlds like compared to i don't want to say mm -hmm. the real world but the actual overall the 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 regular person society right so there, there's definitely a big difference between those ones that i think a lot of people need to understand and i guess a, a proof that it works to have both areas in your life in 2012 and in 2016, I uh, I didn't go to school at all because I thought, you know, like it's the Olympic year, I'm going to, you know, be 100% in swimming and I don't want to go to school because I want to have, you know, more time to recover. Um, because if you're going to school at the same time, the chances are like you can't have a nap in the middle of the, of the day and everything, everybody know that uh, when you're an athlete, uh, napping is really important. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, during those years, you know, like I, I just did swimming, I didn't go to school and my performance was not that much like greater because I didn't have school. It was like, you know, every year I improved a little bit my times, but it didn't improve that much because I didn't go to school. And it kind of like showed me that, 
you know, your body kind of adapts to every kind of situation. And so if you, if your body is used to, you know, like not napping in the middle of the day, but go to school and like, kind of like switch your brain to something else to, you know, make you realize that there's other things in life, it might be even better than napping, you know, like, I don't know. So it kind of, it kind of like made me realize that, um, that's, you know, that's when I realized that it was important to have a good, uh, balance in your life absolutely absolutely balance like you said is so important i think a lot of people are 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 realizing that now especially with covid with everything shut down or now starting to open up at the time of this recording but now still with big worries about whether or not we're going to go back into lockdown again because of the recent omicron variant it's it's so important to have that regular balance because I think a lot of people forgot about that in general with not just not, not only in the legal careers, but in any career, I think a lot of people have forgotten of that work-life balance in general. Right. And the, the, it's at the end of the day, you're working to live, but you're not living to work. Like you're not, you're not, your, your entire existence isn't just made for the purpose to work. Your, your existence is much more than that. And I, this, again, this will sound very cliche and very, very cheesy, but that's just the reality. I mean, there's, I mean, you're, you're defined by like the things that you enjoy doing and the people around you. So mm-hmm. that's a great and, and important reminder for, for all mm-hmm. of us. And mm-hmm. returning to your, to your, your time in swimming, you mentioned 2012 and 2016. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because between those four years, those were some defining years in your swimming career development. And you, well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to open up old wounds, but you barely missed the London Olympics, like barely missed it. Uh, but then you changed training centers and moved to Ontario to train in, in Toronto at the high performance center in, in Ontario. So what were some of the greatest challenges that you faced during those four years? And how did you overcome those challenges? Uh, you know what? Now that I think about it, in 2012, I know it sounds cheesy, but it was everything happens for a reason, and I'm glad that I didn't make the team in in 2012 because I would the team was faster in 2016, and I'm pretty sure that if I had made the team in 2012, I I wouldn't have made like everything that I did between 2012 and 2016 to eventually make the team in 2016 and win a medal in a Rio. So. Uh, in 2012, it was really hard when I touched the wall and I saw that I came, you know, this close to making the team. It was really hard on the moment. But as soon as the Olympics were done in London, you know, I told myself, the, I, I, t- I turned the page, I looked to, for the, the next season and watch me for the next uh, trial, you know. Um, so I guess the, the biggest challenges uh, during those four years, well, the first one is, you know, I just mentioned that I had just turned the page in 2012 to, to look forward for the next season. Well, I got an injury in October 2012, so only after two months uh, after the start of the season. Um, so I have a scoliosis. I have, I have, I have two scoliosis in my back. Um, you can tell uh, when I'm standing, I have one shoulder a bit uh, higher than the other. Um, and so eventually, you know, with swimming, you turn your arms uh, quite a lot. So eventually created tension in my shoulder and it just blocked one day. I couldn't, I couldn't use my arms. It lasted for around three months. 
uh, that I couldn't I couldn't use my arm. So uh, and it's crazy because now I'm saying to you, it took three months. But in the moment, you don't know how long it's going to take, and you oh, yeah. think that it's going to take forever, and yeah. your career is over, and maybe you'll need surgery, and it's the end of the world. And during during those three years, I was just uh, I guess control that's when I realized that you can only control what you can control so um I can control I, I had no power on my arms but I had power on my legs so I really worked on my legs during those three months um I did you know kicking I did uh, weights training for my legs everything that I could you know to to put my energy on the things that I could uh, you know use um and eventually, you know, I that injury disappeared. Uh, I was able to implement back my arms into the swimming with my legs that were, you know, at the next level. And it's almost as if it helped me. It helped me to have that injury because it gave me the opportunity to focus on something else and improve that part that eventually became so important because... A lot of people think that swimming is about the upper body, but, you know, when you have a big machine that pushes you towards, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it changes the game for dives, for turns, for, uh, you know, kick is really important. So uh, I eventually I made my first uh, senior national team that uh, that year, so in 2013. So in, in April, uh, I was still able to make the team, even though I had that injury for three months. So it was a really big thing for me. Uh, the second big challenge that I had during those four years, like I, I had mentioned it a little bit before, uh, they closed the National Center in 2014. So I had been training there since 2009. So five years later, uh, they decided to, to shut down the training center in Montreal. Um, so it was like, you know, two years before uh, the Olympics, um, I had to make a decision because I, I could stay in Montreal, um, but we would have less funding. We wouldn't have, you know, the team around us uh, that, you know, I had used for so many years and I thought that was really helpful. So I decided to go to Vancouver and Toronto to see if there were good training centers. And eventually the coach in Toronto, uh, you know, it just really clicked with this guy. He He's British. He was coming from the UK. Uh, he had a, a really good background with uh, sprints, uh, women in sprints. So it was exactly for me. Um, and, you know, he's really charming. And so when I went there, you know, he convinced me to go train with him. And that's how the whole, you know, Toronto uh, National Center got started for real. Like, we know today there's like Penny Alexiak, Taylor Ruck, um, Maggie McNeil, Tiny Mass. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying names right now that people don't know, but they're all like the big girls, like the, the big swimmers right now in the, the world of swimming for women. They all train there. Well, everything for that um, national center started, I guess, and I don't want to brag, but kind of in 2014, uh, when I, I went there, Penny actually came in 2015. Um, we all made the team together in 2016. And again, uh, it was really hard on the moment for me to move from Montreal to Toronto. I didn't really speak English back then. I went to school in English, um, you know, because I had started law school in 2013. So um, I decided to do like one year at the University of Toronto, like as an exchange student. 
And again, I was talking before about getting out of your comfort zone. It was like the biggest challenge of my career, I think, because it was so, you know, out of my comfort zone, but at a next level, because, you know, it was, you know, the environment itself was just like so crazy, but it was the best decision of my life because that's what, you know, I think got me to where I was in 2016 I made not only did I make the team but we won a medal together and I think uh, you know that two years that I was there uh, was really really you know important in my career and when I think about swimming I always think about those two years it's not even the last two years of my career because I, I retired in 2018 but it was just so I don't know important and it was stressful. I'm not going to say that it was always um, pink. We say it in French, like it's not la vie. La vie n'est pas seulement rose. It was not just pink. It was like a lot of uh, stress and a lot of hard moments. But eventually that's what like shaped me uh, to become a better athlete. Um, and it was just looking back at it, it was just such a great experience. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, I think... Uh, you mentioned the, the coach. I think it was Ben Titley, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I, I've heard a lot, a lot of great things about him as well in the past. And yeah, I mean, and for those of you who don't know, it, Ben Titley was the coach when Penny Alexiak was swimming and still swimming, of course, and she, when she was there and uh, a lot of the other high performance center Ontario athletes, when they were training there, like he, he was a very instrumental part of the, of the coaching staff there. And uh, as 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 Sandrine has said, this has been very. They, he's been very important into uh, launching so many different careers in swimming at, at the Olympic level. And speaking of the Olympics, the trials would come in the 2016 trials. This was your this was your chance once again. And I mean, I don't know. I would assume that <laughs> the stress and the pressure was just astronomically high for you that year. How in the world did you prepare yourself to prepare for these trials? Well, you would think that I was stressed, but I was actually more stressed in 2012 than in 2016. And I guess it was because of the experience that I, I was more experienced in 2016. I had gone through so many trials before um, that at that point, you know, I, yes, I was stressed, but it was not the end of the world. I, I had learned how to manage my stress. Um, and the, the, the other thing is also that the trials were at uh, the pool where I was training for since 2014. So it was at the Panam Center in Scarborough. So it was almost like training at, uh, training at home. You know, I was like doing uh, the probably the, the most important race of my career, but uh, I had my girls around me. I had my family in the stands. Uh, it was the lane that I, I, I used when I was training every single day. So for me, it was just, you know, do what you know, like how you're supposed to do it. Like you're doing every single day for the past how many years. So um, it, it was stressful, but you just got to remind yourself, I guess, when you're you're about to do something stressful, that if you've done the work that you're supposed to do and you've put everything every effort that you could possibly put in, you're ready. And you just got to stop asking questions. And I guess let the, the, your body just do the work because your body knows how to do it. It's been doing it for a lot of years. So just trust yourself again, 
like I said before, it has to come from within, but there's little tricks that you can, you know, learn to, to have even more confidence. And one of those tricks was for me to realize that I had been training so hard for the last couple of years. It, it can only go well. There, like if something goes wrong, it's just because it's part of the game, but you know how to adapt if something goes wrong. And so it can only go as good as you've been training for the past couple of years. And I've been training hard and I know it. And so I need to, you know, trust the process. Yes. Yes, definitely. I, as I can relate to that. I also, it's a similar thing as a pianist as well for a competition or for really just a regular performance. It's there's, there's, there's always this level of doubt of, did I practice enough? Did I get that part right? Did I, Am I able, did, like, is, is my technique clean at that part? Is, am I able to express that part correctly? And the thing about, the thing that that's different from swimming and piano is that in swimming, there's a very quantifiable result where did you make the cut? Did you make the time? Mm -hmm. Did you finish first, second, third, whatever? But in music, you don't have that objectivity at all. Um, especially when you look at the international showback competition, but really any of the national music competitions as well. It's all about interpretation. So you really don't even know how you're going to be able to pass. And if anything, you don't even necessarily know how you didn't make it. But at the end of the day, because as a pianist, we know that it's subjective at the end of the day, at, at some point, as long as we've practiced and we've had the performance knocked, knocked in, that's it. That We're good. We're all set. We're not going to embarrass ourselves on stage. We're not going to, to worry about. I mean, and, and there's also this, this fear that we have like, oh my goodness, if I mess up and completely have a memory block at this point, the world's gonna gonna remember me for that, and especially if it's gonna be recorded, which is a very reasonable fear because that has happened in in several international competitions in the past. But even then, it's just like as long as you've practiced, as long as you are very confident, you just have to go through with it. You just have mm -hmm. to go go for the ride because if you don't, if you don't, then things tend to go badly. It's it's a, it's really weird how the, how the, how the human mind works, where. You, if you think it's going to go wrong, it tends to go wrong. But if you don't think it's going to go wrong, it won't go wrong. It's, it's, it's this kind of a weird like human mind and body uh, dynamic that I think is really interesting. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I relate to that. I think a lot of our audience, especially those who are former athletes, can relate to that as well, especially with, with the nature of law school and exams and papers and everything. Mm -hmm. That's certainly a lesson and a very important virtue that I think we can all learn and relate to at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But you've mentioned before, like, I think there's a certain limit to how prepared you can be for something. Um, I think, you know, if the Olympics were, uh, you know, two years later, I, I would have you know, train, you know, you always do the preparation until the very last moment. If you, if you have a trial set for one week at a specific date, you're going to prepare until that specific date. Let's say the day, the day before it says, no, no, you know, it's rescheduled in one week. You're still going to prepare for an additional week, but you were ready the week before. So it's like, you got to like accept that, it's never going to be perfect, but as long as you've done the work and you know deep down that you're ready, you're just going to accept it and just go for it. Um, because I know that even in my training, I've, I've said it before, like I've, I've trained really, really hard, but could I have trained even harder? Could I have 
like done, you know, that little extra that I didn't do, like for sure, like everybody asks questions all the time. Did I do something, you know, that I could have done better? Like for sure, I could have done stuff better. I could have like slept more. I could have, you know, did, did do this and that, but it's not going to, it's never going to be perfect. And as long as you've done, you know, as, as hard as you can, like as, as prepared as you can, um, it's, it's going to go well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting. Note that they noted on that and it, the, the, I mean, it, if, like to decide, like a little, actually a good example that I just, um, just thought of was that what's again, going back to, I, I, I keep talking about the international football competition. So I think people can tell how passionate they're about not just sports, <laughs> but music good. as well. They actually delayed the competition a whole year because of COVID. So it was actually supposed to take place last year in 2020, but it actually got moved to this year, October, 2021. So you can imagine just how much extra time pianists would have to prepare for that. The thing about piano is that it's like, it's again, it's, it's very similar. You have to practice each and every single moment, but you also have to realize that if you practice too much, you might actually get worse. And that's happened to me on numerous occasions when, when I practice. Like I realized that when I'm practicing too hard, I'm just not getting it. Like I'm just, I'm just failing each part. I'm just like, oh, that's not going to be good. But yeah, it's like you said, it, it's not, you cannot expect a perfect performance. I mean, if, if you were perfect, if there was a perfect performance, you wouldn't have to worry about the competition in the first place. Honestly, you would, you know, you, you would already be at the top, top of the game, but it's, it's, it's always about, yeah, it's about just trusting what you can do and believing in yourself. Mm-hmm. A very cheesy comment there, <laughs> believing in yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you really have to, at some point Like you, you really have to, and, and law is the same thing. You have to believe in yourself. You have to understand. I'm in law school. I'm not an imposter. I made it here for a for a reason. And the, the law school admission council, whoever is that part of that particular law school, they saw something in me. So mm-hmm. I know I'm doing something right, right? So, and yeah, I mean, even though I'm I've graduated law school, I think it, this applies to really any age of 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 law students, past, present, and future. You got to understand that. You're you're there for a reason. Like you you are there. You you will make it. You can make it. And as long as you put in the work, you will make it. And you will mm-hmm. grad- graduate. And you'll have a career. You know that's just how it works. So absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned you like you know the imposter syndrome. Um, a lawyer recently told me, lawyer with like ten years of experience, told me that even after ten years, they still got the imposter syndrome. Sometimes they don't know what they're doing, you know, because it's like so it's such like a large area. There's always new things that even them, like every single day, they they might do something that they've never done before, and they just gotta like go with it. Uh, again, I think you just gotta trust yourself and trust that you know you'll make it. You'll make it happen. Absolutely, absolutely. And as we all know, you qualified for the trials. And take us back to that moment with that you qualified, and that moment when you walked onto that pool deck with Chantal, with Michelle, with Penny, and then the moment where Scott Russell, who actually is a is a friend of mine, actually, when Scott Russell of CBC Sports interviews the four of you what was your memory of that monumental moment uh it's very blurry to be honest because i was on a little cloud uh i was just uh my sister was actually on that final with me or she was like the the race just before so she had you know she gave me a big hug i remember that after my race and then yeah 
Todd Russell yeah. um, for yeah. the interview. Uh, I, 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 honestly, I think it's the first time that I go back to that memory because uh, I've, you know, nobody has asked me that question before, but I guess I was just like on the little cloud. I was watching my family in the stands. Um, I was just so happy to have made the team with those girls, Chantal, Michelle, and Penny. We were training together for the past two years. We knew each other. And it's really rare that you make um, a relay with people that you train with every single day, like 100% the girls we were training together. And usually, you know, because it's uh, the whole, like the whole country goes to those uh, trials you might end up on a relay with people that one, you've never met before, you never talked to before, uh, someone in, from Vancouver, someone from Montreal, someone from Saskatchewan, like everywhere in Canada. But we were lucky enough to be training all together. And that, that really helped us, I think, at the Olympics because we had that chemistry that uh, not every team had. Uh, we, uh, you know, we were like kind of joking around in the ready room just before walking on the pool deck and so the stress was not as uh, as big because like we all we knew each other we knew like we trusted each other like we trusted in our performance and so that's one that that was less stressful but two it made it so more enjoyable uh, to do it together absolutely yeah yeah that i mean i can imagine i can imagine just like just the energy even just watching back that that race and you mentioned your sister yeah she was actually swimming in that final that very same final um, yeah okay i wasn't sure if it was the semi-final before or the final um yeah so it was also a great moment to do it with her <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and, and and yeah and yeah the, the calls were also amazing like steve armitage was still announcing swimming back then and fire mcdonald uh whom you and i you and i also both know uh, also was the color commentator, legendary announcers in, in, in swimming, yeah. <laughs> you know, define the Canadian, the, the Canadian announcing, uh, in swimming. Uh, yeah, that was, that was certain, that is certainly a very, very emotional moment. And afterwards, Rio de Janeiro was your next step. This was yeah. the final frontier. This was the end game. Terrible Avengers end game reference, but anyways, uh, take us, <laughs> take us through each moment from the moment that you stepped onto the Olympic pool, the moment you swam your portion of the relay, the final moment that Penny was swimming the final stretch, take us through each and every moment of what you remember to the best of your ability. That's a good thing to say of what I remember, because again, it was so blurry. I was like, so like in another world that I don't re remember a lot um, I remember, well, first of all, I was lucky enough to be the first one swimming. So it was like my, the position that I was, you know, the best because I had uh, really good dives um, and I was uh, consistent in uh, my swims. So they knew that putting me first, uh, they, you know, they knew that I was going to do like that time. I, I was not going to go necessarily like one second faster, but also not one second slower. I was going to do exactly what I was supposed to do. And so that's what you need as a first uh, relay uh, person to go first, to, to be consistent. So knowing that, I, I, had, um, I was lucky enough to be able to watch the last part of the race from the pool deck uh, and cheer with, for my teammates. 
The bad side about it is that I didn't have any more control on the race and I was like, you know, helpless. I just had to scream as much as I could and hope for the best. And um, back then, Penny, uh, it was like the first day of swimming. So we, we knew that she was fast because she had done really good swims at the Olympic trials. But we didn't know back then that she was, you know, that fast because the 100 meter freestyle individual, the individual event came only, I think, five days later. And so she went 52 uh, in the individual event. But, you know, on day one, we didn't know that she was able to to go that fast and she was going last and she was going against the Netherlands so we were racing us and the Netherlands together for the third position because the states and the Australia was uh, I don't want to say way ahead but they were ahead we knew that uh, if we were going to win a medal it was going to be the the bronze medal at that point when Penny jumped in the water and so the last uh, leg uh, Penny was uh, swimming with Renomi Kromowi Jojo from the Netherlands. And Renomi is such a good swimmer. She won gold, I think, in the 50 and the 100 meter freestyle a couple of times. And the Olympics or world champs, like she had world records back then. She was, she was huge. And so to have her against little Penny, 16-year-old Penny, to be honest, I, I, I didn't, you know, had 100% trust that Penny could hold uh, until the last, uh, you know, to, to come third. Uh, but you know what? We were hoping for the best and uh, cheering as, as, as loud as we could. And eventually she touched the wall in front of Renomi. And I, if you tap, uh, type my, uh, my name on, on Google, it's like, I think the picture that first comes in is like me, you know, my face when I realized that we came third. It's crazy because it's like, I can't believe it. Um, that like a few months before my goal was to make the Olympic team. And then here we are in Rio and we win a bronze medal. And it, it was like better than everything that I could hope for. You know, it was like just incredible. It's hard to explain to also experience that with your friends. Like in that moment, I could, you know, hug my friends together like again we were training together like we knew everything that we went through for the past couple months years and you know we looked at each other and it all made sense and it was just so crazy and again I had my family in the stands I was able to look at them you know I started crying and like immediately um so it was a really really great experience <laughs> yeah 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 i mean yeah I, I was watching that um that swim actually at a, at my cousin's house in ottawa i think that was yeah that i was announcing uh uh announcing a summer basketball tournament at the time it was between carlton and some div one schools in, in the u.s but yeah i remember coming to my cousin's house and we were just we were watching the swim at first we were just like okay so we, we we've, we've never we've never heard of you know penny Alexiak at, at that time because this was this was her first olympics so we're just like okay well we have some canadians in the finals okay let's see how how well we do and then all of a sudden we see wait a minute we're actually gaining wait <laughs> re really it's like wait whoa, whoa. and uh, it was it was yeah that was that was certainly i mean to, to call it an emotional and an exciting emotion uh moment is an understatement at this point because it's, it's far more like you said like it's, you just couldn't describe it and i mean there, there's also this one on cbc there was this one moment where 
where, yeah, I mean, I, I think you mentioned on CBC to, to Andy Petrillo that, that you hadn't seen your family in such a long time because you were training all the way in Ontario. You moved to Ontario, like you said earlier. It was just, you know, that, and, then, and then all of a sudden your parents are right behind you. That yeah. was, <laughs> that, I mean, I, I can't imagine the emotions just in that moment. Like you've won the bronze, your friends are there, and now your family's there. Like that is, wow. Like that's almost like a storybook ending there almost. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a really, uh, even when I look at that video today, I, I have tears in my eyes because I can go back to how I felt in that exact moment. And it was really, I was really emotional because yeah, like I said before, my parents um, really helped me in my career to know, you know, make the right decisions, but they also really supported me. And it's really important to have um, a team around you, a family that trusts you, uh, supports you, because when when you're young, you almost do it for your parents, because like, and eventually I did it for myself, but when I started, I, I did it for my parents, because they were proud of me, and I was like, okay, if I can make my parents proud, like, you know, I feel like I did a good job, and um, they... They followed me in like every competitions that I did, uh, if it was in Australia, if it was in France or, you know, everywhere they, they, they followed me. And so it, it meant something when uh, when they were there. And yeah, there's this little uh, thing that uh, CBC made, like a little surprise when I was, you know, answering a question and it came from behind. I was really emotional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I can relate to, you know, just being able to, to, to do something to make your parents proud. Cause I think all of us, all of us at the end of the day, we want to do something that makes our family proud. Right. And, mm -hmm. and at some point it's all about that. You have to move on a little bit from that. And of course not completely, but a little bit from that into, to a point where you can make yourself proud as well and know that, okay, I'm doing something right. And I'm doing something mm -hmm. well in whatever career pursuit that I had. But, but yeah, that, that, like I said, this was a, essentially almost a, almost like a perfect storybook ending at this point for you, but you would not stop at the Olympics. Of course you swam for two more years, of course, and took a couple of golds from the U sports swimming championships in 2018. I've had the pleasure of announcing those, those swims as well, uh, three years ago. And Manville, Sandrine Manville coming up to the wall and in great fashion as she touches with a time of 52, four, six. That is a new U sport record for Sandrine Manville. That same year, you also retired as well. Looking back on your swimming careers, I mean, your swimming career, what are the things that you miss the most? And what are the most important lessons that you've learned from your swimming career? Uh, what I miss the most, I guess, is the team. I don't miss the trainings at uh, 5.30 in the morning. I don't miss the cold water um, I miss the big competitions. So like every summer, you know, like going to world championships or, you know, Commonwealth games or, you know, you go, you travel for a month with your teammates, you go somewhere exotic and uh, you meet new people, you meet people from all over the world and you do it with a team around you and you build, you know, you build relationship with them. Uh, that's something that I, I will miss definitely because it's not something i think i will be able to recreate in my life that kind of like experience that i had um the lessons that i learned i think i i've mentioned it a little bit during this um, podcast but you know trust yourself and get out of your comfort zone i, I i've 
came to say it so many times, get out of your comfort zone. Uh, but I've realized recently that when I'm about to do it, e even today, like I'm scared and I don't always, I don't always want to do it. But it's only after that I've done it that it makes sense. Um, you know, I had my first uh, important trial last week and um, the partner that was with me um, asked me to, you know, plead. Um, so he was uh, examining or interrogating the witnesses and doing all the, the evidence side of the trial. And he asked me to do the pleading at the end. And at first, you know, I was like, oh, I don't know, I'm stressed. Maybe uh, you're better than me and I shouldn't do it because, you know, maybe I might disappoint the clients. I don't know if it's a, right, a good idea, but then, you know, like I can't disappoint him. He asked me to do it, so I'll do it. And I did it and it was great. Um, even if I was stressed, um, I was able to overcome my, my nerves and I think I, I did good. And so it's only at the end when I got into the cab that I realized, you know, that this is what I've been telling everybody about my swimming career, but I've experienced it for the first time as a professional. Well, maybe not for the first time, but, you know, getting out of your comfort zone and breaking the ice, you know, and doing something that you've never done before, but you do it to break the ice, to realize that you can do it. It's not that bad. It's not the end of the world. And again, if you've worked hard and if you've done everything that you can do to prepare for this right moment, it's going to go as planned and you're going to, you know, you're going to make it work. So, yeah, I think those are the lessons that I, I would uh, tell uh, young athletes or young uh, law professionals when they start their career. It's always, again, when I say that, I always feel like an imposter because I'm like, who am I to tell people what to do? But I guess uh, this is what I learned. And if people can experience from it, uh, that's good. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> well, life is always a constant learning experience, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, very important lessons and virtues to live by as well and as a result speaking about going out of your comfort zone going from swimming to law school like that is wow you know it's like it's uh, i mean why not going for actually you went you did law school during your when you were swimming of course uh but i guess what i wanted to ask you was finally the question that i that i typically ask all of my guests is what inspired you to go to law school Oh my God, I don't think I'm going to have the answer that you want because I don't think that's <laughs> that inspirational because um, I, I guess it was always in my nature to, you know, want to argue or like I'm also always, uh, you know, curious and I always ask questions like why we're doing this. I always want to know, you know, why and the reason behind everything. Even when I was training, like my coach would tell me, he would give me a training and I would ask him, why are we doing this? You know, it had to make sense for it to do it because um, if I don't understand why we're doing it, then, I, you know, I don't put as much effort, I guess, because it doesn't make sense. Uh, so it was, I guess, always in me to kind of, when I was even like 10 years old, my parents told me that I would make a great lawyer. And, you know, at 10 years old, you want to be, you know, like an actress or you want to be a teacher. <laughs> you know, it was like too serious for me to be a lawyer back then. So I was like, ah, no, not for me. But like you mentioned before, I went into uh, health science and CGEP and, you know, doing chemistry and physics and all of that. I knew it wasn't for me. So I was like, okay, maybe it's time for me to try law. And um, 
like any law student, I think you start into this program and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, great. Like you don't really know like if you like it or not until you actually start practicing it because it's so theoretical in school. Um, and, you know, even if you think that you like it or even if you don't 100% like it in school, you only know if you like it or not if you start practicing and it was like kind of a bet for me to go into law because I didn't know if it was exactly what I wanted to do but uh, I'm lucky enough to say that uh, it was a good bet because I, I really enjoy it now um, I think it's a, a bit similar to you know high performance sport because it's really intense and there's like really stressful moments it's working hard to for like you know uh, working in a big firm you know like you have to work hard uh, long hours I guess for uh, really specific moments uh, especially when you're a litigator um, yeah so there's a lot of similarities uh, with my career um, when I compare it to swimming uh, and so yeah I guess yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 no worries. Like your answer was was great. It, it everyone has a different pathway to to yeah. law school. So yeah, that that that's one of the reasons. What why about always, you? Yeah, for me, the reason why I wanted to go to law school is because there's a very diverse skill set that you get in law school, right? So what? So of course, you know, law school is, is the whole purpose of it is to is to practice law, you know, and but. It, it, Aside from just practicing law, there are also a lot of skills that you learn in law school that are so applicable to just about any aspect of society or your own life or your own communities as well. Uh, mm -hmm. This actually brings to mind something that, uh, that uh, Prime Minister Paul Martin told me on an earlier episode of the Law School Show. He said that when he went to law school, he... He knew that law would be something that he would need to do to go into business, and for him, he made a pretty a, a very uh, very uh, hilarious comment where it was, it's it helped me to do anything except play football, you know. So, <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, for me, it was a diverse skill set, and of course, I I, I want to practice law, of course, and I, I also wanted once again to be able to have, to, for me, for when I whenever I talk with people. You know, you know the old saying, the jack of all trades? I don't want to be the jack of all trades. I want to be the master of all trades. Mm -hmm. like, I want to master everything that I could possibly ever do, right? So uh, personal friends know me that I, that, I, that I pursue a lot of different, uh, a lot of different personal and professional and, and social pursuits as well in, in terms of my activities. You know that I, that I do sports announcing as well. Like I want to do all these things because, because I can and because I want to and because I know that, you know, I don't want to, go 34 years into the future and look back and say, Oh, I should have, I regret mm. my decision. I should have got, taken that opportunity. Like, I don't, I don't want to miss an opportunity. I want to do that opportunity so that in the future, I said, even if I didn't make it, at least I tried. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but that, that's, that's my very rambly way of saying, well, I wanted to go to law school and what inspired me to go to law school. And also my, my family also told me that I would, that I, I make a very good, <laughs> make a very good lawyer because, because, because I mean, when I was a kid, I, I loved doing public speaking and speeches and all that kind of stuff, and uh, I, I always felt comfortable doing class presentations. I, I just loved doing it. That's why I joined this podcast uh, three years ago. So, but yeah, that's... did you start the podcast yourself? No, no, no. So, uh, two gentlemen uh, 
back in 2014. Their name are their names are Chris Deshen and Rishi Dahir. They created the podcast, oh, and geez. they're they're lawyers now. They've been lawyers for about like I think five or six years or something like that. But they created it, and this grew and grew and grew into what it is today. We're in our eighth season, so it's it's yeah. So so I I joined in in around 2018. Okay. My first first year of law school and uh, fell in love with podcasting and just kept doing podcasting. So, well, you're doing great. <laughs> like you. I said before, you have a, the voice of a sports an- announcer and also a sports, uh, you have the voice of a, you know, podcast host. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and in your, in your own legal practice, you also, you know, going back to your legal career, you also joined the sports dispute. Resolution Center of Canada, the SDRCC. And for me, just briefly looking at the SDRCC, there are also a number of names that I recognize that are also former Olympians as well, who also went into a legal career. And what inspires you to, to join the SDRCC? Um, well, I wanted to give back to, uh, you know, the, the sport community in some kind of way, um, but also, you know, have a like, volu- because that's a volunteer role. And I mentioned before that it's important to have balance while I, you know, was looking for ways to do something else outside of my career. And um, so I joined the SDRCC because I was actually at a Athletes Can uh, conference one time and uh, someone on the board approached me. He was a former um, swimmer Olympian. Like, so he knew me, he knew uh, that uh, I might be a great addition to the board. And so it was my first experience on the on the, on the board it was uh, I learned a lot I'm, I'm still there so it's been a bit more than two years now um and I guess I was looking so the SDRCC is uh, kind of like so as an athlete you might have some uh, trouble with the law and so for if it's uh, you know doping or carding if you want to appeal a decision from your federation um you might go eventually to the SDRCC and it's like you have mediators or arbitrators that'll help you resolve uh, your your case. And I was lucky enough uh, to not have to use the SDRCC as an athlete, but I think it's really important. And I think it's it's great for me to be able to, you know, um, mix my athlete uh, history with my new career into like kind of like one uh, specific role um, so this is exactly it that's a law with sports so I think it's great for me and um, I learn a lot about sports law which is something that is completely different from what I, I do every single day in, at BLG and so I guess uh, it might again I was talking about opportunities it might give me new opportunities from me being there um, so yeah, we'll see. Uh, that's uh, and you mentioned that there's also other Olympians on the board. There's uh, Alex Harvey, who's a, a skier uh, who retired, and he's also a lawyer now. So it's great to be with those people who are really inspiring, and I, I learn a lot, and I think that's a really good experience. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, our audience is mostly law students, so they of course know know, know this very very well, but. For those for for those of, of us in the audience who are not in law school, who are not law students, who are who are interested in trying to get into law school or understand the legal system, I mean the the, the legal system is not just the courts. It's not just you know you go to trial instantly, right? So it's I mean I, I still get this even nowadays. A lot of people ask me, "Hey, do you watch Suits?" 
or do you watch Law and Order? I'm like, oh, I mean, <laughs> like, oh, it, it's yeah. it's not. I mean, there are some inspirations, but it's not a hundred percent accurate. And plus, they're American shows, which is yeah. very different from from Canadian systems. So it's like. Yeah, so like it, there's there's mediation, there's arbitration, there's there's ADR, alternative dispute resolution, and that's something that most cases or almost all cases would pretty much go to first before you reach the trial, and even then, only like less than one percent of cases actually go to trial because mm-hmm. we, we 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 would have already resolved that case before we need to go to trial, and typically, and a lot of lawyers would say this: you don't want to go to trial because it's all or nothing like you either get everything you want or you get nothing at all so you want to you know you want to leverage your 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 interest there but but yeah i mean sport sports law is is something like you said very very different from not just necessarily employment law but from a lot of other areas of law as well i mean at least from my very preliminary understanding of it it's it's mostly like representing players representing their interests and representing them or signing new contracts like the nhl would be a good example of that Mm -hmm. new contracts of of people of new athletes who may have gotten drafted to a new team but they need to sign a specific contract of x number of dollars for x number of years playing for which specific team are you going to a feeder team or you're going straight to that team the, the the main team and it's it's this whole entire area that is very fascinating. It's it's a very it's a fascinating area of law that not many people actually look at, even those who are legally trained. But when you read about it, and, and in your case, when you when you had your immersion into that world, it's so interesting. It's fascinating, and I would imagine the SDRCC has so many different areas where and opportunities where you had that amazing immersion into. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so you've mentioned, so there's uh, in sports law, I think there's different subcategories. There's sports agents, so people who represent, you know, football players, hockey players. Um, there's the litigators, so that will be the, the lawyers who represent either the athletes or the federation, uh, you know, in front of an arbitrator or if they go see a mediator. But there's also just like lawyers who would work for the federations who would make sure that, you know, like everything you know, as um, uh, their their standards, their policies, everything you know is uh, you know from a law perspective is uh, is well managed. So I I learned that through uh, my role at the SDRCC. So it's nice that uh, you know I'm able to learn about this outside of um, you know my job, my day to day job. So um, that makes me realize that it's. it's it's important to, you know, do something outside of your day-to-day job to, you know, stay curious, meet new people, and you never know where this is going to lead you. Absolutely. Yeah. And as we start to conclude the the episode, as you know, COVID's still raging on. At the time of this recording, we are over a year and a half, almost two years now into this into this pandemic. And it's been I can understand it's been very difficult on 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 all of us on everyone watching this episode or listening to this episode. It it seems that you know and and you know for our our entire conversation has been very very you know very very focused on you know there's so many opportunities out there but sometimes a lot of people and I think a lot of people would relate to this. It just feels like there's barely anything out there at this point because everything's mm-hmm. shut down. You know, we, mm-hmm. we're living day to day, basically. We don't know what's going to happen the next week. Omicron just became a variant now. And apparently that's even worse than Delta. And we don't know if this pandemic is going to go down. We're in 
probably the fifth or sixth wave or however number, number of waves that we've had. And law school is already extremely stressful without the pandemic. With this, and now being almost two years into it, I'm glad I'm out of, I'm out of law school now, but I, I, I cannot imagine what my colleagues and peers who are still in law school, what they're going through right now. What advice would you give to law students and law graduates as they begin their careers in the middle of a pandemic? What advice would you give to them to, to push through this, 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 this very difficult time? Mm. Well, on top of everything that I just mentioned, uh, there's one thing that I haven't uh, touched on today and I think is really important for me is to have goals. Um, to have short-term goals right now is really important because, like you've mentioned, everything is changing so fast and it's, it's hard to, you know, have a long-term goal that, you know, if you start a career in law, you enter into a law firm, you can't just say, oh, in seven, eight years, I'm going to be a partner at that firm. It's too long. You have to have short-term goals to stay motivated because right now, I think that's what people need is to be motivated by what they're doing and to have short-term goals. And at, then you just got to establish what those goals are. They, are they, 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 they should be attainable, not impossible, because if it's too... Um, uh, hard to achieve them then you're going to lose the motivation and they're going to be concrete goals so you're going to have concrete goals to be able to you know uh, do the things that eventually are going to lead you to where you're you want to go so and again i'm saying that and even me i don't have you know i'm i'm missing goals or i'm missing concrete short-term goals to stay motivated and i'm trying every single day or every single week to to make those goals appear in some kind of way. And uh, that's, I think, I just want to say, I realize that it's really hard. And even me, I'm in that uh, process of establishing those goals. But because I know that those are really important, and so I, that's what uh, helped me in my career, I'm trying right now to make this effort of establishing those goals. And after that, doing the things that I'm supposed to do to achieve them. Because... I mean, if you don't have a goal, I mean, what are you doing every single day? You can't just do your job. Again, it has to have a purpose. If you don't have a purpose, you know, what's the point? And especially right now when we're all working from home, every single day are kind of the same. And so I don't know about you, but like for me, the past year and a half, come to a point where I was like, I feel like every week is the same because I'm not going to court. If I am, I'm doing it virtually, but I'm still sitting on my chair at home in my living room. You know, it has to be uh, challenge, challenging. And right now I feel like it's all the same and I'm get, not getting out of my comfort zone. So I have to establish goals to, you know, like go forward, go forward to, you know, something. So yeah, I don't know about you, but uh, right for me, that's it. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, for me, it's it's a similar experience as well. Although right now, living back at home and and moving back from Ottawa back to to Mississauga, which is the city where I'm living in, it's yeah. I I feel I feel like I'm in like you said, like I'm, I feel like I'm in a bit, a bit of a rut as well, right? So like you're in this same the same motions and everything and stuff like that sometimes. Um, but what I do typically is for me, I. 
I started practicing a lot more piano now. Uh, now that I'm back home, I, ha I have access to a piano, a full like full time access to a piano, so I can come back home. I can practice back my old pieces, practice new pieces as well. So if in the world, in in the in the very rare event that someone calls me up, hey, we need a we need a, a, a pianist for the specific concert. It's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm available and just bring me through. And music's also very therapeutic as well. And mm -hmm. hobbies in general are very therapeutic from what I found because it takes your mind off. It takes your mind to a different, a different world. I don't want to say a different world. That just sounds very pretentious, but it, it just takes you, your mind off of the stresses of what you're going through each and every day. And it is a very stressful time. Sometimes I, I do have to remind myself of not being too skeptical of, of everything around me because that's, I tend to get really skeptical sometimes. And uh, it, it's just, it's just me. It's my own, my own, my own little issue, my own little battle that I have to face, but it's, yeah, like it, it, I, I, yeah, for me, it's, all about being able to get my mind off of what's happening in front of me and also to shut off the news sometimes, right? The news is just like, oh, a thousand cases. Yeah. Oh, and then vaccine, we don't know if it's going to be working. We need another booster. Oh, it's like, oh, okay, I, I, need, I need some time off of that. I, I need to, I'm, I'm just going oh, sure. to, yeah, just, just go to YouTube and, uh, you know, watch like, <laughs> watch like Mr. Beast or something, or I don't know, like Mr. Beast. Do, or... <laughs> do the things that make you happy. If you're yeah. in a happy mood, uh, everything will be fine. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, this was great. Like we went through so much, like we went through so much in today's conversation. And um, I, I mean, I think a lot of people are going to appreciate the, the advice that you've, that you've given i think a lot of people will enjoy the the stories that you've told that you've gone through over the last decade and even more than that as well it's yeah it's been a great and enjoyable experience and sandrine thank you so much for coming on to the show today paul thank you for having me <laughs> and thank you to all the audience for tuning into this episode of the law school show i'll leave a link to Sandrine's Twitter handle. I don't remember her Twitter handle off, off the top of my head, but I'll leave it in the, the, the description of this episode if you want to follow her on, on her social media as, as well. And yeah, once again, Sandrine, thank you so much for coming on to this, this to, to the show. Tune in next time as we have another, yet another great guest onto the Law School Show. We're actually coming up to almost 200 episodes very, very soon. So very much looking forward to to reaching that milestone very, very soon. But until then, thank you once again for tuning in. Signing off for now, this is Amos Vang. Stay safe and stay healthy. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.